0: You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. open up God's uh, Word to John chapter 3. Uh, John chapter 3, we'll start in verse 22 here in just a few minutes, and we'll go all the way to the end of this wonderful uh, chapter of the Bible by the end of our time today. Many of you are probably familiar with the phrase that we use in our culture, at least, where we say something along the lines of, always the bridesmaid, but never the bride. Or there may be a male version of it where we say, always the groomsman, uh, but never the groom. I had thought, I was thinking of that phrase this week because of some of what's in this text that we're going to read. And I was assuming that that was just a phrase that had been around forever, that as long as there had been marriages and friends celebrating marriage and, and whatnot, that that had been a phrase that had been along around a long time. But as an actual phrase, I, I learned that that originated back in the 1920s, so fairly recently in the whole scheme of things. And the place it really boomed in popularity, and this is true, I looked this up, this, this seems very random, uh, was... With a advertisement campaign for Listerine mouthwash, I'm very serious. Like if you go back and look, and the, there's a 1920s ad campaign for Listerine mouthwash that, for good reason, they could never get away with today. Uh, but they hinted that if a woman was not able—and they used the female—if uh, she was not able to be married, that maybe it was because her breath smelled bad. And that if she would just start using Listerine, that it might increase her odds. And it's hard to tell with the black and white ads and whatnot, if that was tongue-in-cheek or if they were serious about that. I wasn't around in the 20s. I do not know. Uh, But that is where the phrase originated. It was big at the top of this ad. It would say, often the bridesmaid, but never the bride. And... Uh, since, as time has rolled on, it obviously has no connection to mouthwash for mo- most of us. Uh, but what it has come to mean when women say that or men say that, it, it's trying to capture something. It's trying to express something. Uh, I think it's expressing two things. One is just the internal struggle of wanting to be married, but not being given a spouse, wanting to be a wife, wanting to be a husband so badly, but not being given that opportunity by the lord but i've also heard it enough in conversation with people or in culture to know it also expresses another tension that happens within the person about how they relate to those who are getting married that they that this struggle that they have they, they're a friend if, or a relative at least if they're in the bridal party and they want to rejoice they want to celebrate and be happy for this person but there's this struggle that happens when they are not receiving that opportunity themselves and there's a, a real tension that can happen. I want to be happy for you. I want to be excited for you. Um, but it's difficult. It's hard when I'm not receiving that myself. And the, the passage we're going to read today, right in the middle of it, is going to contain an ancient. 2000 years ago kind of similar uh, expression by john the baptist he's going to be talking about jesus as a groom of sorts or he'll say a bridegroom same thing jesus as a groom and himself as a friend of the groom as a best man almost and he's going to be using that image to say that's what his and jesus's relationship is like jesus is getting this notoriety getting this praise and all these opportunities and his His star is falling, so to speak, John the Baptist. And we're going to see him use that even illustration of marriage and being in a wedding party. Um, But I think as we read this story and we even see these words of John the Baptist and focus in on them, I think we're going to be challenged. I hope that we are challenged ourselves with that question of, am I truly able to celebrate the gain of another when it means loss for myself? Am I able to, and especially when it comes to Christ, am I able to celebrate the gain of Christ and his, his growth, his expansion of his kingdom, even when it means loss for me and for mine? And that's what we'll, where we'll land at eventually. But before we read this, we're going to go from 22 to 36, verse-wise. Um, but I wanted to remind us of a couple of things from this, this Gospel of John. This is a record of Jesus' life that we're slowly working through. Uh, we're up to the end of Chapter 3 today. But this is a story of Jesus' life. And this one is unique. We have four written records of Jesus' life in the Bible. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the last one, and it was written last by all appearances. It was the final one that was written. And if you read the first three there's a bunch of similarities between them they tell common stories and there was obviously a bunch that jesus did and taught that these people picked and chose what they put in and how they assembled them and what they left out and whatnot but the first three are very similar they tell similar stories maybe little nuances that are different different emphases but john when he wrote his gospel his record of jesus's life he chose to pick knowing that there were stories already going around in god's word he chose to add stories not make them up but to record stories that the other gospel writers hadn't included for some reason and this is what we're going to read today is one of those uh, among many that are in the gospel of john that you don't read about in the other gospels but john included it because he wants us to learn certain things about christ and john also we'll see in this passage john more than the other gospel writers takes some time when he's telling the story of Jesus' life to kind of hit pause on the story And to offer his own thoughts, offer his own explanations, or this is the significance of what just happened, this is why this was important, this is what this teaches us about God. He kind of adds his own commentary as he goes, and we're going to see that in the end of what we read, the last paragraph today. And so uh, we're going to read, this is early on in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, He just had a conversation with Nicodemus, uh, probably outside Jerusalem, some of the most famous parts of the Bible, and then we get to this, verse 22 and following, so follow along with me in your Bible, It goes like this: After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also this is John the Baptist. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Then this is that analogy he uses. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Then this paragraph is John the For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. There is much, much that could be said here. And I I, and. I'm going to try to summarize this and give us time to take communion together later, which I'm always excited and look forward to taking with you. But I wanted to uh, share some thoughts from this text. And the the main thrust of it that we're going to see, especially from that middle paragraph, that middle chunk, i would summarize this way, is that I want you, I want me, to find joy in Christ's increase, even when it means your decrease. Find joy in Christ's increase even when it means your decrease. Just so we understand where we are, what's going on in this story, the first couple of verses are helpful to set the scene for us. Jesus has just been in Jerusalem, it seems, for a while. If you were here a few weeks ago, we saw how uh, this is still really early on in his ministry. He had gone into the temple in Jerusalem at Passover and flipped over tables and knocked over coin changers, coins, and driven animals out of there and had caused quite the scene. So he just had this deep, deep conversation in private with a man named Nicodemus Uh, But now we see verse 22, Jesus and his disciples that he started to accumulate, they go out into the Judean countryside. So they leave the big city, so to speak. They leave Jerusalem where all the prominent people are, and they go out into the countryside to the south into this region of Judea. And it says that Jesus was there with them and was baptizing. And this is one of the only mentions that we have of this, of Jesus and his disciples baptizing we know at the end of Jesus' life when he's about to go into heaven he says hey go make disciples now and baptize them but what we may not realize is that jesus's disciples were actually baptizing people at least here at the beginning if not throughout all of jesus's time uh, where he was ministering and we know if you look down this is a side note if you look down in chapter 4 verse 2 John makes it clear that Jesus himself wasn't baptizing people, but that it was his disciples who were baptizing people. So it wasn't Jesus himself, uh, but his disciples were baptizing. And it seems, verse 23, John the Baptist is right around there as well. They're in this same general region uh, that John and his disciples are still baptizing, still calling people to repentance like we saw earlier in the Gospel of John. So they're somewhat nearby one another baptizing and as a side note for theological nerds out there, or not nerds, but notice it says that people, uh, that John was baptizing in this area because water was plentiful there. I'll just say this as an aside. I think that's an indication that the proper way to baptize is by immersing people, not by sprinkling, not by pouring water, but that is another sermon for another day. Or if you would like to talk about that, I'd be glad to. But it seems like there's a lot of water around there, enough to dump people in uh, to, to baptize them. And so you have Jesus' disciples baptizing. You have John the Baptist's disciples baptizing fairly close proximity to each other and verse 25 says there's this discussion that arises between some of john's disciples and some jewish person we don't even know who they are they're having this conversation about purification and we don't know the nature of that conversation but somehow in the through that conversation some of john's disciples it seems like get really concerned they get really worried and worked up because uh, they start to hear about the disciples of Jesus baptizing people and how many people are starting to go to them, starting to go to hear them teach and go be baptized by them and even leaving John or choosing to go to Jesus's crew of disciples instead of coming to John's. And they, they come to him, uh, you see in verse... 26 and 27. And uh, I'm going to just tell this story with a few um, headings, maybe you call them. This first one that I would say for verses 26 and 27 would be what I would call God's distribution when it comes to Him giving, taking, expanding, contracting. God's distribution. That He's the one we see through what John says. God is the one who's in control of expanding ministry or retracting it, giving things, taking things away. So look at what happens. John's disciples come to him and they say, "Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, the one you bore witness to, look, he's baptizing, and every they say all are going to him." That's usually a bad sign when we start saying all, right? Exaggerating, that should be a sign that we're overreacting probably to something because it's very clear some people are still coming to John. um, But they say, all people are going to Jesus and to listen to him and to be baptized by him. And you can hear in their voices, even by just reading it, we don't have their tone or inflection, but you can tell by the written words that there is this jealousy that seems to be in their hearts there's this comparison that they're doing between the crowds that are coming to john and the crowds that are coming to jesus and they're conveying in their their questions and their statements this jealousy that more people are going to jesus now there's a concern that's definitely present in their voice and maybe even a panic because they can kind of feel their their influence slipping away these these crowds going to jesus going to hear him going to be baptized by him and john's response i think is very helpful for us in verse 27 because before john the baptist ever talks about him and jesus and the specifics of any numbers or who's going where he makes this just blanket statement about all of humanity about everything that god gives Uh, and he says it this way he says his disciples he says a person this is how he answers them A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And John is trying to make a point with his disciples right at the get-go, and I think the Lord would want us to know as well, that God is the giver of everything. When he says a person cannot receive even one thing, that means even the smallest things that we receive in life, the, the opportunities we've been given, the gifts we've been given, He says, you're not getting anything unless it's given to you from heaven. That was a way of back in the end of saying from God. That even the smallest things that you're given in life are given to you by God. And the inference that he's trying to make too is that if you're not given something, that's also because God has chosen to not give it to you. And think about this, when other people are given something, it means God gave it to them. We, we often just, when we look around at our life and we see other people's opportunities expanding and their star rising or we see ours shrinking or our, our, our star falling, so to speak, our situation getting worse, we're tempted to just think of it in a human perspective. We're either tempted to think our life is just random. Well, what can you do? Like that person's getting more notoriety and I'm having less, or it's going well for that person, it's not going so well for me. Kind of like God's not involved at all, that it is just randomness in our life. Or we're tempted to think the opposite. (coughs) That when I'm doing well and I'm having increasing opportunity, it's, it's because I have worked so hard. It's because I have done due diligence and I've I've prayed enough about this. And I, I've, I've been godly enough and I've been responsible enough. And God's just going to bless and keep expanding. Or when we see that happen in other people, we think, well, it's just because they've worked so hard. Or maybe because they know so-and-so or whatever. We think it's just like, a, we think it's a purely human thing like it's a, like the world is a machine that if you just put certain inputs in certain outcomes will happen like, that you'll get more opportunity or you'll get less opportunity you'll get more notoriety or you'll get less you'll get more recognition or you'll get more ignored and john is wanting his disciples to know that all things are given by god to other people to you and when when things are withheld or even when they shrink your opportunities that's because God is arranging it that way as well. God is not absent from the expansion or the shrinking of our opportunities. He's very much present and giving it and guiding it. And, and sometimes that is for our good and our expansion, and sometimes it is for uh, our shrinking. It's for our opportunities becoming small. And this is important for us to know. If we're going to think rightly about our own losses, we're going to think about our own gains, our own opportunities that are given for us to remember they're given to us by God. Uh, that is a foundational idea that John lays uh, there up front for us, that we have to know all things are distributed by God. The world's not random. The world's not just a machine uh, or a math equation. The world is guided by God, every part of it, every detail of your life. The, the, the good, the bad, the growth, the, the, the shrinking, it's all from the Lord. And so he wants them to know about God's distribution, but he also wants them very clearly, I would call this section, verses 28 and following, he wants them to know about Christ's increase. He he wants them to know that is a good thing. That's on his heart. That's what he longs for is for Christ to increase, for him to have more people come to listen to him, more people to come to be baptized by him, more people to see him for who he is. And I I love how uh, verse 28 started. Uh, I don't know if you picked up on this. But he says to his disciples who've just come to him all worried and worked up because so many people are going to Jesus. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've sent before him. And what he's reminding them, if you look back up at verse 26, even as they're coming to him, they're saying, hey, John, you remember the guy you testified to about how great he was and how wonderful he is and how about he's the Christ and all that stuff? Do you remember that guy? People are actually going to listen to him now. And people are actually going to follow him. And John is trying to point them out. I know. like I told you that's what I wanted to happen. You guys heard me say it back several weeks ago or a couple months ago or whenever it was. I've wanted that from the beginning. That is good. I've told you guys that. You know that. Why are you freaking out? He he wants them to know from the get-go he has wanted Christ to increase. He told people, if you read back earlier, John, he told some of his disciples, go follow him. Go listen to Jesus. He's the Messiah. I'm not. He's the one who can give you the Holy Spirit. I can't. He's the the Lamb of God who can take your sins away. I can't do that. I can dunk you in water, bring you back up, help you dry off, and tell you to repent and live for the Lord. But he's the Son of God who can save you from your sins. The one who can give you the spirit and give you power to change. And so John is telling them, you disciples, you know this. That's what I've wanted all along. I've wanted Christ to increase. And then he uses that analogy in verse 29 of the wedding, right? He uses that analogy and he talks about how the groom is the one who is receiving a bride at a wedding. There's good that's coming to this couple. There's joy that's coming to that groom very obviously. And he talks about the friend of the bridegroom verse 29 that's maybe our equivalent of a best man in today's world he says the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice and so when he hears the groom coming with his bride when he when he hears excitement in the groom's voice there's excitement in his heart he's happy for his friend he's happy for this one who is about to get married and he's john's using that as an analogy of him and jesus He's saying, in a sense, Jesus is the groom. He's the one who is gaining a bride for himself. He's the one who's having good come to him, and people are actually starting to come and listen to him and respect him and, and revere him. And I'm just like a groomsman. I, I'm want, I rejoice in that. I am grateful for him, that, there, that his star is rising, that, that he is starting to receive everything that is due him. I am glad for it. I'm grateful for it. That's what I've wanted all along and if we had more time we would go more in detail through, through this last paragraph that was more of ch- of verse 31 to 36 where John the disciple has given some more commentary here but a couple of things i would point out in that paragraph are, are things that show us the reminders that the disciple John gives to us of why Jesus Deserves to increase. Why Jesus actually deserves gain. He deserves to have notoriety and fame. Note a couple of these things. John is talking about Jesus. And in verse 31, he talks about him as coming from above. Jesus was not any mere human. He had, been, he had come from heaven. He had existed eternally with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He came from above. John the Baptist came from his mother's womb. Jesus came And he says that not only that, but he is above all. And John is writing this, the disciples writing this, remembering now that Jesus has been raised from the dead and made Lord of everything. And he's ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And John is saying he is, Jesus is above all. He is in charge of everything. He deserves people's praise. He deserves people's respect. He deserves people's honor. You keep going down in verse 34, he talks about Jesus again as being sent by God, uh, that God sent him. He says that Jesus even utters the words of God. That's something John the Baptist did not do. John the Baptist maybe represented God or told them things that, that God would want them to know. But Jesus speaks the very words of God because he is God. That's something that no other teacher could do. And there's another reason Jesus deserved gain. He deserved notoriety. He deserved fame. He says that Jesus gives the Spirit without measure in verse 34. Again, that is something John the Baptist cannot do. I cannot do. You cannot do. No other human being can give the Holy Spirit to people other than Jesus Christ. And there's another reason he deserves gain. He deserves fame. He deserves praise. And so there's all these reasons, even just embedded in that paragraph, of why he should gain, why he should increase. And that's why John the Baptist, in this verse 30, says about Jesus, he must increase. He deserves to increase. Every human being should go listen to him. The people who are here listening to me, John the Baptist would say, should go listen to him right now. He deserves every human being's praise, every human being's attention. And so we see that Christ's increase was on his heart. He rejoiced in it. He delighted in it. That's what he wanted. And I would say the same should be true of us. That we ought to long for Christ's gain. That we ought to long for Christ to become more famous. Christ to become more known. Christ to become more respected and revered and honored by people. He he is the one that the world was created by. And that the world was created for. We are not. Our church is not, I am not, you are not. Christ is the one who the universe was made for and that every other human being was made for. And we ought to long for him to be known by people, for him to be revered, respected, worshipped. His gain is of far more importance than our gain. His, his, His fame is far more important than mine or yours or anyone else's. His gain, his fame, his increase ought to be on our hearts. And I know in that sense, as I say that, that, and I hope this is true, I know most of you in the room, I think I'm preaching to the choir on that note that I think almost every one of you in this room would say, Amen, Christ should be more famous. Christ should gain. Christ should increase. Like, Let him be known around Winona Lake. Let him be known around the world. Let him be known in every corner of the world until he comes back. Let his fame increase. I hope you say that. If you wouldn't, I would love to talk to you and understand why that's not on your heart. But every one of us would say, yes, he must increase. But that verse does not end there. Like verse 30, John the Baptist says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And I would ask us, I would ask myself, can I say that too? Like if the gain of Christ means my loss, am I okay with that? Am I embracing of that? For him to gain, if that means that I need to lose, that I need to shrink, that I need to have loss come to me, am I willing to do that? Because John presses that analogy he uses of the the best man and the groom. If you think about it, a best man and a groom, even if the best man is not married yet, You know, at at worst, what he's experiencing is uh, a lack of something, right? It's not a removal of something. He's wanting something that God's not giving. It's a a lack of something. That's not decreasing. That's just staying where you are and wishing you had more. But what John says in verse 30, he goes a step further than that and says, I must be willing to decrease. Not just be happy when Christ increases. But I must be willing to be demoted. I must be willing to have things taken from me. I must be willing to suffer. I must be willing to lose if Christ is to gain. That is a much harder thing for us as individuals and as a culture to swallow because we are all about gain. We are all about increase in our culture, aren't we? We uh, We want Jesus to gain, but we want it to be through our gain too. We want Jesus to gain by me having more of a platform to speak to people on. We want to, to, for Christ to gain because I've been given all this wealth that now I get to just distribute and be generous to people. That's how we want Christ to gain. We want Christ to gain by him always healing us when we're sick. And, saying, and having him gain by people seeing his power to heal and not by how he sustains us in sickness. We, we always want him to gain through our gain. But John suggests something otherwise. He is suggesting that sometimes Christ gains, or often I would say Christ even increases, through our decrease, through our loss. And John is not just, there's some preachers, uh, and I'm sure I am like this at times, who just say something but then don't always live it out adequately who, who offer these nice platitudes and statements that sound good, but then don't th- don't follow through. I want you to know when John the Baptist says, he must increase, but I must decrease, he was not a man who just said those as empty words. Like this is the last time he appears, at least as an active character in the Gospel of John. Uh, we don't see him any longer in this story other than people reference him. But if you read the other Gospel accounts, you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and many of you already know this, but John the Baptist's decrease goes way beyond just people, crowds leaving him. It goes way beyond people who used to follow him going and following Jesus. What happens in John the Baptist's life is that eventually he gets arrested because he was confronting the sins of the, the leaders in their area, the kings and even their relatives, calling them out on their sin and saying, you need to repent, you need to change, you need to, to bend your knee before the Lord he was thrown in prison, then ultimately, and uh, I will be as simple as I can and not crass and crude in saying this, but ultimately, he ends up having his head cut off in prison and delivered on a platter, like a grotesque party favor to one of the king's relatives because they hated John and they they didn't like what he was calling them to do and that he was refusing to, to back down off his call to repent. You want to talk about a willingness to decrease. That was a deeper willingness to decrease because he wanted Christ to gain. And he was willing to give his life for it because he knew that those people in power needed to bend their knee to Christ. And he wasn't willing to back off with that and to back down from it. He was willing to have decrease even to the point of death so that Christ might increase. And we need to be people who have a willingness to decrease ourselves to have a willingness to embrace whatever decrease the Lord may have in our life. And that is not a popular message in our culture. We, we want, like I said, to always have Christ's gain come through our gain. We want his, his reputation to expand by our reputation expanding. And us having a greater role in society or in my business or in my community or in my church. We want his gain to always come through our gain. But the way he gains is often through our loss. I want to mention just a couple ways that that could be to help hopefully paint that picture. I want you to think about whether it's in church life or whether it's in a business or in the community, on a team, a club, uh, whatever, where where you had an opportunity at some point. You had a responsibility given to you. You had a, a certain thing you were doing, and then it's removed from you. Or you're asked to scale back. You're asked to, to stop doing that. Typically our response when we have shrunk that way, when we've decreased that way, is to be bitter. It's to be frustrated. It's to complain. It's to try to undermine those people who are now doing what we used to do. That, that's the bent of the human heart. But can you imagine how much Christ's reputation could gain if in those circumstances you were willing to celebrate the people who are now in those positions, that you were actually willing to encourage them, you're actually willing to help them. Can you imagine the volume that would speak with about you not treasuring that thing, that opportunity, that platform, that position more than you treasure Christ? You could show them, I love Christ more. And if he chooses to give that to you, I want to help you in it. And if he chooses to remove me from that, that's his lot for me. And I'm going to embrace that. I'm going to serve well in whatever I am given to do. That could speak volumes for the reputation of Christ. That could be a gain for the kingdom as people see you live that way, as opposed to how the world would. I want you to think about how if you have financial hardship come upon your family. Yes, the Lord could be honored, Christ could gain if he gives you all the wealth you could ever want and you turn around and choose to give that to others. But have you ever thought before that if Christ removes your job or he gives you a pay decrease or you get fired and your, your income as a family shrinks, have you thought about how even within your own hearts there could be a gain for Christ because you stop loving the possessions as much? You stop loving the security of a constant paycheck that is way overabounding beyond what you need. And you are learning to depend upon the Lord for provision more than you ever have. And you're forced to, to start to prioritize. And so your generosity then out of lack can speak even more volumes to people that you say, you know what, I don't have much, but I still want to give. That that will shine more brightly to people and will give Christ a greater reputation than even, I would suggest even those who are wealthy who give out of abundance. And so there's opportunities when we have financial hardship that comes to us, that God removes financial security from us. There's opportunity for Christ's fame to grow in our hearts, our, our dependence upon him to grow in our own hearts. I think of... of uh, women and even some men I've known who were in a workplace and who when children come, they leave the workforce and they go and become a stay-at-home mom, a stay-at-home father. And that they, the world may look at that and say, well, that's a, a, a net loss. That's, a, that's a, a detraction of your influence and your significance because you used to have this opportunity and you were rubbing shoulders with these people and you're making an impact in this way. And now you are changing diapers or you're taking kids to preschool or you're uh, opening Lunchables or whatever, making snacks up, turning on um, whatever for your children and uh it could people could view sometimes we're tempted to view people who serve in lesser visible roles as not honoring the lord as much that the way you really honor christ is out in the public sphere the way that you really honor him is by having visibility and influence on masses of people or at least on large groups of people but there is great Great, great gain that comes for the kingdom of God by people who are willing to serve in obscurity. People who are willing to serve in anonymity because that is how Christ loved us. He left heaven to come to earth. He left angels worshiping him to come and be born in a stable where no one was with him but animals and his mom and dad. That is how he lived. He, He lowered himself to less Prominence to, to less notoriety, but that is the way of love. And that when we do that, when we're willing to serve in obscurity and have sometimes more public opportunity removed from us, that is a great gain for the Lord. Because even if it's just those kids who experience your love, that is a great gain for the sake of the kingdom of Christ, that they know you love them and you do it because Christ loved you. Like that is a great, great gain. There are many other examples I could use uh, of ways that our lack, our God even removing things from us that we used to treasure, that used to long for, that sometimes he removes those things from us. Sickness he brings, he removes health. Uh, financial lack he brings us, removing stability. There are ways he can decrease us, but it can be a net gain for Christ in our own hearts and in the lives of those who are watching us as we process these losses. But I think sometimes, though, I've talked with people, I've even, I've more read things like this, so that when we read about this, if you just read verse 30, and you say, Christ must increase, but we must decrease, you could be tempted to think that that is a really uh, a inappropriate way for a God to gain is by the losses of his people. Like, what kind of God is that? That says, I'm going to gain by making you lose. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to increase by making you decrease, by bringing hardship upon you or removing opportunities that you love and that you thrive in. I'm going to gain, but it means you're lost. I, I was thinking about um, w- maybe an illustration that might help understand where people would be coming from. I was thinking about when Saddam Hussein was finally toppled as a leader in Iraq, and I, I was thinking about stories that I heard on the news and elsewhere of when soldiers were going through uh, the the country and trying to restore stability, they would come upon these gigantic palaces, these these enormous, monstrous, beautiful, uh, exquisite palaces. And I remember them talking about just how crazy that was that this ruler, on the backs of his people's suffering, had built so much for himself. That he had kept food from people, had, had taken money from people so that palaces could be built, so that exquisite things could be brought to him. But it was on the backs of, of his people, the people that he should have been loving and serving. And sometimes people, when they're new to hearing about Christ, and they, they know that he even allows or brings suffering or decrease to his people, they could think he's the same. That he's just this, this God who who calls upon his people to suffer so that his fame you are tempted to think that, I want to remind you of something that is foundational to the Christian faith. And it's that Christ doesn't just call us to decrease so that he can increase. Because, remember this, first, he decreased so that we would increase. He lost so that we might gain. That is what happened in the coming of Christ into our world. It was a a leaving of heaven. It was a taking on of limitation as a human being. Having a smaller scale, so to speak. Becoming a, a vulnerable human being. He allowed himself to be mistreated by people and even was abandoned by people as he came time for him to die. He was abandoned not just by some like John the Baptist but abandoned by all of his disciples. He was losing and then when he went to the cross he gave his life voluntarily decreased himself and his death wasn't because it wasn't something he deserved it wasn't something that was rightfully coming to him he died by taking on our sins saying make me decrease even more father like take their sin and put it on me and judge me in their place and that's what happened. He was put to death for our sins. His decrease, decreased, 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 But then he was raised from the dead and given eternal life. And now to us he offers forgiveness of sins. And he offers eternal life. He, his decrease, his voluntary decrease was for our infinite gain. Our eternal gain that we could have never got ourselves. But he decreased First, so that we might increase. And that's why we can, with sincerity and with joy, say, because you did that, I am willing to have decrease come to me if it means increase come to you. I don't long for that. I don't want that. But if that is how you can gain and people can come to know you and how I can come to know you in a deeper way, then then make me decrease. Take things from me if you need to, but I want you to increase. And Christ does not call us to do something he has not done himself. He doesn't just call us to embrace decrease as some stranger to that, but he calls us to that as someone who has experienced decrease we can never even experienced loss we cannot fathom he is the one who has experienced decrease and can enable us to experience decrease and embrace decrease ourself because there's great gain he has gotten for us of eternal life i want to end before we take communion by pointing you to verse 36 the very end of this text i, I trust for many of us in the room we have put our trust in the Son of God, that we had this one who was decreased for us, that that gave up heaven, that gave up even his own life for us so that we might have forgiveness. I trust that we have done what verse 36 says, that we have believed in the Son, that we have put our trust in him and have received eternal life. But there are some, I would guarantee, in this room that have not done that you've not put your trust in the Son of God, the one who decreased himself for your gain. You just hear about him and you keep him at arm's length. You don't listen to him. You don't believe in him. You don't trust in him. I would point you to the end of verse 36 because John said, Whoever does not obey the Son, that's Jesus, shall not see life, and the wrath of God remains on him. That is our starting place with God, is that his wrath should be coming upon us he says if we will put our trust in the son of god the one that was decreased for us that we will receive infinite gain that we will receive forgiveness that we will receive eternal life and if you have not done that before i would call you today to do what this verse says to believe in the son of god the one who decreased for your increase and he, he offers you forgiveness and eternal life if you will just turn to him.